Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, May 18th edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Milestone Vote in Philadelphia by Campbell Robertson Philadelphia The afternoon before Election Day, Jennifer Robinson, 41, was trying to manage her two small children in the quiet corner of a public library in a pocket of her city that had endured generations of abandonment. She was despondent about the state of Philadelphia, most of all about the crime, but she talked about the mayoral primary as if it had little bearing on any of it. Nobody has any answers, Ms. Robinson said, shifting her restless 11-month-old from arm to arm. It's a feeling of hopelessness. This is the city that Cheryl Parker will be leading as mayor if she wins the general election in November, and these are the sentiments she will be trying to turn around. On Tuesday, Ms. Parker, a former state legislator and city council member, secured a surprisingly decisive victory in a Democratic primary that had been seen as a tight five-way race up until Election Day. The huge number of undecideds in the last polls appear to have broken heavily for Ms. Parker, 50, the only black candidate of the five main contenders hoping to lead a city where black people make up more than 40% of the population, and where black neighborhoods have been especially hard hit by gun violence and COVID. If she wins the general election, which she is favored to do given that registered Democrats outnumber Republicans in Philadelphia more than 7 to 1, Ms. Parker will be the first woman in a line of 100 mayors. That list of men goes back centuries, before the city had established itself as the cradle of American independence, and long before President Biden came to Independence Hall last September to warn the nation about threats to democracy. For Philadelphia, Ms. Parker's primary victory is a sign of how the city has changed, in just the last half century. For most of the 1970s, the mayor was Frank Rizzo, a former police commissioner who embraced brutal police tactics, particularly towards black Philadelphians. But the city's challenges remain deep and daunting. At least half a dozen Philadelphia public schools have been shut down because of asbestos contamination, a predictable debacle in a city where the average age of public school buildings is over 70 years. Housing costs are out of reach for many residents. There is a city staffing shortage, with thousands of municipal positions unfilled. Hundreds of Philadelphians have died in recent years from opioid overdoses. Looming over all of this are the killings. Rates of gun violence have risen in cities large and small across the country, but they have been particularly severe in Philadelphia, a city of 1.6 million, nearly a quarter of whom live in poverty. More than 500 people were killed in each of the past two years. The highest annual tolls for the city on record, and many hundreds more have been injured by gunfire. The number of shootings and homicides has declined this year, but the city is awash in guns. Republican legislators have tried to remove the district attorney over the enforcement of gun laws, while city officials have sued Republican legislators for limiting their ability to enact stricter ones. Philadelphians are virtually unanimous in their alarm about the violence, but have been less unified about the solutions. Larry Krasner, the progressive district attorney who has insisted that the city cannot simply arrest its way out of the crisis, was re-elected by an overwhelming majority in 2021, with some of his strongest showings in the neighborhoods most scarred by violence. On Tuesday, many of those same neighborhoods voted for Ms. Parker, who pledged to hire hundreds more police officers and bring back what she called constitutional stop-and-frisk. People are not feeling safe. They're feeling that a sense of lawlessness is being allowed to prevail, she said in an interview shortly before she launched her mayoral campaign. We can't ignore that.
These proposals have faced strong pushback and skepticism about the ability to hire hundreds of officers at a time when police departments nationwide have struggled with recruiting. Her Republican opponent in the November general election is David O., also a former city council member. In the Democratic primary, Ms. Parker's pitch to voters was that she understood firsthand what their lives were like as a Philadelphia native, as a black woman who was the daughter of a teenage mother, and as the mother of a black son. This appeal has created lofty hopes among black voters, said Carl Day, a pastor who leads the Culture Changing Christians Worship Center in one of the poorest and most violent areas of the city. The expectation is definitely there from the black community that she knows what we're going through, and so she will definitely bring about change, he said. Still, he said, these hopes appear to be mostly held by older black voters who are more likely to embrace Parker's agenda, including her push for more policing. Younger black Philadelphians, Pastor Day said, were more skeptical of Ms. Parker and even worried about some of her policing plans. Already, Pastor Day said, he had seen younger people online wondering what this means and saying that nothing was going to change. There is a seeming contradiction here, that a city deeply unhappy with the way things are going just voted for a candidate who was endorsed by dozens of sitting lawmakers, city council members, and ward leaders. Even the current mayor, Jim Kenney, a term-limited Democrat who has become highly unpopular, said he voted for her. Isaiah Thomas, who won an at-large city council seat on Tuesday, said that even with that support, it was not fair to call her the establishment candidate. Most of her opponents had their own networks of connections. But, he said, the breadth of her support, including trade unions and lawmakers, showed that she knew how to build and maintain coalitions. She's a worker, said Mr. Thomas, who joined the council in 2020 and worked alongside Ms. Parker managing its response to the crises of the last three years. She understands government. She understands the budget. In state government, any Democratic mayor would find a more willing partner than his or her immediate predecessors. Last November, Democrats won control of the Pennsylvania House for the first time in a dozen years, a majority that was reconfirmed after a special election on Tuesday night. The current House Speaker, Joanna McClinton, represents part of Philadelphia, as does the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, the new governor, Josh Shapiro, and the majority of the Democratic caucus in the state Senate are from the region. There's reason to be more optimistic about Harrisburg's relationship with Philadelphia than there has been in many years, said State Senator Nikhil Saval, a Democrat, who endorsed one of Ms. Parker's opponents in the race, but praised some of her accomplishments on the city council, such as a program she helped create that offered low-interest loans to homeowners. Still, in interviews in Philadelphia this week, voters and local politicians alike said that the most urgent task of the new mayor would be to give the city a jolt of optimism. For many in the city's poor and working-class neighborhoods, that might start with the attention of someone who has seen up close their daily struggles. But, people insisted, hope would only stick if there were tangible results. I haven't seen anyone help. It's just getting worse, said Ms. Robinson, the mother in the library. For me to vote for someone, I'd have to see difference. Republicans in the House stalled the efforts to expel Santos. By Michael Gold. House Republicans on Wednesday repelled an effort by Democrats to force a vote on expelling Representative George Santos of New York, who was charged last week in a 13-count federal indictment covering wire fraud, unlawful monetary transactions, stealing public funds, and lying on financial disclosures. Republicans voted along the party line, 221 to 204, with seven Democrats voting present, to refer the resolution to expel Mr. Santos to the House Ethics Committee, 
which has been investigating Mr. Santos's finances and campaign activity for months. The measure to expel Mr. Santos, introduced by Representative Robert Garcia, a Democrat of California, was unlikely to succeed in the House, where it would have required a two-thirds supermajority to pass. Republicans hold a majority so thin that Mr. Santos's vote remains crucial, reducing the political incentive for them to support his ouster. Indeed, by delaying the vote, House Republicans, including some who have called on Mr. Santos to resign, avoided having to commit to a firm position on his behavior. But their actions also may be construed as a tacit endorsement of Mr. Santos's remaining in Congress as he faces ethical and legal inquiries. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has for months deferred action and defended Mr. Santos's right to his seat, arguing that the House should not punish Mr. Santos without a formal report by the Ethics Committee. But a handful of Republicans, many of them first-term representatives from New York, have for months said that Mr. Santos was unfit to serve and demanded that he resign. The vote to expel Mr. Santos threatens to put those New York representatives, most of whom flipped swing districts that will be prime targets for Democrats next year, in a politically thorny position. Voting for Mr. Santos's expulsion would have put them at odds with their party, but voting against it may have made them appear hypocritical after months of forcefully denouncing Mr. Santos. That tension was on display when Representative Anthony D. Esposito, the first House Republican to call for Mr. Santos's resignation, introduced the motion to refer Mr. Santos's expulsion to the Ethics Committee. Mr. D. Esposito, who represents a district adjacent to Mr. Santos, said that he would have voted to expel Mr. Santos, but since he knew the effort would fall short of the votes it needed, he said, he believed that this is the quickest way of ridding the House of Representatives of this scourge on government. After the vote, Mr. Santos, who voted with Republicans, said, I look forward to seeing the process play out, and if the Ethics Committee finds a reason to remove me, that is the process. The timeline for the House Ethics Committee's investigation remains unclear. The committee did not open its inquiry into Mr. Santos until March, nearly two months after two Democratic lawmakers first requested it do so. It is often criticized by government watchdog groups for moving too slowly. The criminal case against Mr. Santos could further delay the committee's work. In past cases when federal prosecutors have brought criminal charges against a representative, the Ethics Committee has deferred its inquiries at the Justice Department's request. Still, Mr. McCarthy on Tuesday said that he wanted the committee to move quickly. I think they could come back faster than a court case could, he said. Mr. Santos, who has pleaded not guilty to all charges, is next expected to appear in federal court on Long Island on June 30th. He has repeatedly insisted that he has no plans to resign and last month announced his intent to run for re-election. He said on Wednesday that he has been 100% compliant with the Ethics Committee's investigation, but he has not appeared before them yet. Justices Won't Block Illinois Laws on Rifle Sales by Adam Liptak The Supreme Court on Wednesday refused to block two Illinois laws prohibiting the sale of high-powered guns and high-capacity magazines while challenges to them move forward. The court's brief order gave no reasons, which is typical when the court acts on requests for emergency relief. There were no noted dissents. Several other states, including California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and Washington, along with many municipalities, have enacted similar laws in the wake of mass shootings around the nation. Recent shootings, including one at a Texas mall that left eight people dead, have prompted calls for further efforts to address gun violence. 
The case that reached the Supreme Court was a challenge to a city ordinance in Naperville, Illinois, enacted in August and a state law enacted in January. The ordinance prohibited the commercial sale of assault rifles, listing 26 categories of weapons, including AK-47 and AR-15 rifles. The state law covered similar weapons, along with high-capacity magazines. The National Association for Gun Rights, along with Robert Beavis, who owns a firearm store in Naperville, sued to challenge the laws, saying they violated the Second Amendment. In February, Judge Virginia M. Kendall of the Federal District Court in Chicago denied the plaintiff's request for a preliminary injunction, saying that the laws were consistent with the Second Amendment's text, history, and tradition. Judge Kendall, who was appointed by President George W. Bush, acknowledged that the Supreme Court, in striking down a New York law last year that had placed strict limits on gun ownership, had announced a new legal standard for evaluating the constitutionality of gun control laws. She quoted the key passage from Justice Clarence Thomas's majority opinion in the case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. When the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. The government must then justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. After a survey of the historical record, Judge Kendall wrote that assault weapons pose an exceptional danger, more so than standard self-defense weapons such as handguns, and are used disproportionately in mass shootings, police killings, and gang activity. Justice Kendall concluded that the text of the Second Amendment is limited to only certain arms, and history and tradition demonstrate that particularly dangerous weapons are unprotected. In asking the Supreme Court to intervene, the plaintiffs said that this is an exceedingly simple case. The Second Amendment, they wrote, protects arms that are commonly possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, especially self-defense in the home. The brief cited a 2015 dissent from Justice Thomas, who said the Supreme Court should not have turned down a petition in a case concerning a ban similar to the one in the new case. Roughly 5 million Americans own AR-style semi-automatic rifles, Justice Thomas wrote at the time, referring, he said, to modern sporting rifles. The overwhelming majority of citizens who own and use such rifles do so for lawful purposes, including self-defense and target shooting, Justice Thomas wrote. Under our precedents, that is all that is needed for citizens to have a right under the Second Amendment to keep such weapons. The plaintiffs urged the justices to act quickly, saying that the laws are literally destroying Mr. Beavis's livelihood by banning 85% of the firearms his store sells. In their own brief, state officials told justices that the features of the prohibited firearms render them uniquely suitable as weapons of war, but not commonly used or suitable for personal self-defense. The historical evidence, the brief said, supported the state law. During the founding era, Americans typically owned muskets for militia service and fowling pieces to hunt birds and control vermin, the brief said. Single-shot, muzzle-loading firearms remained the standard weapon up to and including the Civil War. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. U.S. Drug Overdose Toll Neared 110,000 in 2022 by Noah Weiland. Nearly 110,000 people died last year of drug overdoses in the United States, according to preliminary federal data published on Wednesday, a staggering figure that nonetheless represented a plateau after two years of sharp increases. The preliminary count of 109,680 overdose deaths 
was only slightly higher than the figure for 2021, when 109,179 people were estimated to have died, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Overdose deaths had climbed significantly that year and the prior year, increasing by roughly 17% in 2021 and 30% in 2020. Dr. Rahul Gupta, the director of the White House's Office of National Drug Control Policy, said in a statement on Wednesday that the Biden administration's overdose strategies were working. We've expanded treatment to millions of Americans. We're improving access to naloxone to reverse overdoses, and we're attacking the illicit fentanyl supply chain at every choke point, he said. Still, the newly released data offered the latest indication of the catastrophic effects of fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that is often mixed with stimulants and other drugs and can go undetected before a drug sample is ingested. Synthetic opioids contributed to about 75,000 overdose deaths last year, according to the CDC. The six-figure death toll was another signal that the nation's efforts to unwind the damage from an increasingly complex and deadly drug supply are still far from complete. Drug overdoses have contributed to a decrease in life expectancy in the United States and are one of the nation's leading causes of death. Other drugs in the nation's supply that can be mixed with fentanyl, such as the cheap and addictive animal tranquilizer xylazine, have heightened the dangers of opioid use. The Office of National Drug Control Policy last month designated xylazine as an emerging drug threat, a move that required the Biden administration to organize a government-wide plan to respond to the drug spread. The count of overdose deaths in 2022 was an estimate and may change as the government reviews more death records from states, officials cautioned. A final count for 2022 will not be published until later this year or early next year, a CDC spokesman said. Since the 1970s, the number of drug overdose deaths has climbed every year, with the exception of 2018. The sharp increases in 2020 and 2021 were driven for the most part by the major changes of fentanyl availability around so many parts of the country, said Dr. Wilson M. Compton, the deputy director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. The new data showing deaths leveling off last year was a potential bending of this historically high curve, said Dr. Daniel Sicarone, a professor of family and community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Still, Dr. Sicarone said, one can't be utterly optimistic that this is a signal of a permanent change. He warned that the continuing trend of overdose deaths among unsuspecting people using counterfeit pills laced with fentanyl. Many of the interventions that the Biden administration has called for in a bid to reduce overdose deaths are loosely organized in a strategy known as harm reduction, which encourages the use of tools that make drug consumption safer. President Biden is the first president to endorse this strategy. A key part of the strategy is naloxone, an overdose-reversing medication that can now be sold over-the-counter. A scientist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill who has reduced naloxone use in the United States, Nabarun Dasgupta, said some states have been particularly aggressive in deploying the medication, such as Arizona, Utah, and West Virginia, and saw decreases in overdose deaths last year. An effective addiction treatment for opioid users that can be taken at home, buprenorphine, is now easier to prescribe, but the medication is still significantly underprescribed, including for black patients, a recent study found.
drug checking tools, such as fentanyl test strips that alert users to the presence of the drug in a sample, have also saved lives, public health experts say. When people know, they can make different choices or safer choices, said Colleen daly Nidoin, the executive director of Project Weber Renew, an organization in Providence, Rhode Island that works with drug users and distributes fentanyl test strips. The group plans to open the first supervised drug consumption sites legalized by a state early next year. Drug checking machines will most likely be a component of the site. Florida District is sued over banning books from school libraries by Elizabeth A. Harris and Alexandra Alter. A lawsuit filed in federal court on Wednesday said that a Florida county violated the First Amendment by removing or restricting certain kinds of books from its school libraries. The free speech organization Penn America and the country's largest book publisher, Penguin Random House, filed the lawsuit along with a group of authors and parents. The complaint said that the Escambia County School District and School Board also violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because the books they targeted were disproportionately written by non-white and LGBTQ authors and addressed themes of race, racism, gender, and sexuality. Today, Escambia County seeks to bar books critics view as too woke, said the complaint, filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida. In the 1970s, schools sought to bar Slaughterhouse-Five in books edited by Langston Hughes. Tomorrow, it could be books about Christianity, the country's founders, or war heroes. All of these removals run afoul of the First Amendment. The lawsuit comes in a moment when many educators and free speech advocates are alarmed by the surge in book-banning efforts in schools and libraries across the United States. The sharp rise in book challenges over the past two years comes as books have become targets in a broader culture war. Whereas in the past it was typically parents who filed complaints against individual titles, current efforts to remove books have been fueled by a rapidly growing constellation of conservative groups, such as Moms for Liberty. They are often national in scope and can run organized campaigns on social media. New legislation in several states, particularly Florida, has made it easier to challenge and remove books. In Escambia County, the restrictions the lawsuit is concerned with began when Vicki Baggett, a language arts teacher in the district's Northview High School, challenged more than 100 titles beginning last year. Among them were picture books, young adult novels, and works of nonfiction. The complaint described her objections as nakedly ideological, saying that she had argued that the books should be evaluated based on explicit sexual content, graphic language, themes, vulgarity, and political pushes. Among the books was And Tango Makes Three, about a penguin family with two fathers, which she objected to for, quote, serving an LGBTQ agenda using penguins. The complaint said that many of her written challenges appeared to be pulled, sometimes verbatim, from a book side called Book Looks, which contains hundreds of reports about books that were deemed objectionable by the website's operators. Ms. Baggett, who did not immediately respond to requests for comment, spoke at an Escambia school board meeting on Tuesday and argued that the district had failed to remove many of the books she and others had identified as inappropriate for students. I've been begging you simply to follow the law and remove books that are obviously inappropriate, she said. So far, the school board has voted to remove 10 books, some entirely and others from certain grade levels. In each instance, the board did so despite a recommendation from a district-level committee of educators, media specialists, community members, and parents that the books remain in place. The district has also changed what happens to books while the legal challenge plays out. 
Traditionally, books would remain on the shelves until after they were evaluated and possibly removed. Now, many of those books are placed in a restricted area that children need parental permission to enter. The lawsuit described the policy as allowing an indefinite restricting of titles, and said that entering a special area would be a significant hurdle for a child, one that could come with certain stigma. Cody Struther, a spokesman for the Escambia School District, said the district was unable to comment on pending litigation. Two school board members said they could not comment on an active lawsuit. Florida has become a hotspot in the dispute over what reading material is appropriate for children. Last year, the state legislature passed three laws regulating educational or reading materials. One prohibits instruction that could make children feel guilty about past actions of members of their race, and another bans instruction on gender identity or sexual orientation. Initially limited to elementary school, the law now applies to all grades, but this debate is not limited to one state. Escambia offers a very vivid and disturbing example of what's happening across the country, said Suzanne Nossel, chief executive of PEN America. These politically motivated, ideologically driven, viewpoint-based bans on books. Proponents of book restrictions say they are trying to protect children from inappropriate material and to give parents more say in their children's education. Many also object to saying that these books are banned because they are still available in public libraries and bookstores. Young people, they say, should encounter sensitive topics with adult supervision, not alone in the school library. Several authors whose books have been removed or restricted in the district joined the lawsuit, including Sarah Brannan, George M. Johnson, David Leviathan, Ken Lukoff, and Ashley Hope Perez. Ms. Brannan's picture book, Uncle Bobby's Wedding, which features a girl whose uncle marries his boyfriend, was challenged in Escambia by a resident who objected to the content because the book, quote, contains alternate sexual ideologies and should not be in lower levels in elementary at all, according to a form that was filled out. One example of inappropriate content provided in the objection was an illustration that showed Uncle Bobby holding his boyfriend's hand. Access to the book, which is aimed at three to seven-year-olds, has been restricted during the review period, meaning that only students whose parents sign an opt-in form can read it, according to the lawsuit. It seems very clear from the nature of the complaints against the books that they are being removed on ideological grounds, and therefore it's clearly unconstitutional, Ms. Brannon said. My book is being restricted because it has LGBTQ characters in it. Penguin Random House was also part of the suit. Many of its books have been removed from Escambia school libraries or otherwise restricted, including The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, Push by Sapphire, and The Kite Runner by Khaled Husseini. We see a rise in these book banning activities, and we felt compelled to support our authors, our teachers, our librarians, who are on the front lines of these battles on a day-to-day basis, said Nahar Malavaya, the company's chief executive. One of the parents who is suing the district, Lindsay Dershai, lives in Pensacola and has a six-year-old and a nine-year-old in school in Escambia. Ms. Dershai said she volunteered to join the committee that was formed to evaluate books to make sure they complied with new guidelines. She was alarmed to see that the books being scrutinized were mainly about themes of race, gender, or sexuality. It's important, as part of their public education, that they are encountering lives that look different from their own, she said of her own children and other students. It's infringing on our students' First Amendment rights, because even if a book is available in the public library or on the internet, that does not negate the necessity for it to be in the school library, because not every child is privileged to have their parents pick up a library card or to have a tablet or an e-reader. Mr. Shai said she was particularly upset that 
two books her nine-year-old daughter loves, and Tango Makes Three and Drama, a graphic novel about a girl who loves theater, were removed from the school library. It's one thing to say, I don't want my kids to read that book, she said, but if the book isn't there, no one can read it. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heat Expected to Set Records in Next Five Years by Brad Plumer Global temperatures are likely to soar to record highs over the next five years, driven by human-caused warming and a climate pattern known as El Nino, forecasters at the World Meteorological Organization said on Wednesday. The record for Earth's hottest year was set in 2016. There's a 98% chance that at least one of the next five years will exceed that, the forecasters said, while the average from 2023 to 2027 will almost certainly be the warmest for a five-year period ever recorded. This will have far-reaching repercussions for health, food security, water management, and the environment, said Pateri Tallis, the Secretary General of the Meteorological Organization. We need to be prepared. Even small increases in warming can exacerbate the dangers from heat waves, wildfires, drought, or other calamities, scientists say. Elevated global temperatures in 2021 helped fuel a heat wave in the Pacific Northwest that shattered local records and killed hundreds of people. El Nino conditions can cause further turmoil by shifting global precipitation patterns. The meteorological organization said it expected increased summer rainfall over the next five years in places like northern Europe and the Sahel in sub-Saharan Africa, and reduced rainfall in the Amazon and parts of Australia. The organization reported that there is also a two-thirds chance that one of the next five years could be 1.5 degrees Celsius, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than the 19th century average. That does not mean that the world will have officially reached the aspirational goal in the Paris Climate Agreement of holding global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. When scientists talk about that temperature goal, they generally mean a longer-term average over, say, two decades, in order to root out the influence of natural variability. Many world leaders have insisted on the 1.5 degree limit to keep the risks of climate change to tolerable levels. But nations have delayed so long in making monumental changes necessary to achieve this goal, such as drastically cutting fossil fuel emissions, that scientists now think the world will probably exceed that threshold around the early 2030s. Global average temperatures have already increased roughly 1.1 degrees Celsius since the 19th century, largely because humans keep burning fossil fuels and pumping heat-trapping gases like carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But while that overall upward trend is clear, global temperatures can bounce up and down a bit from year to year because of natural variability. For instance, a cyclical phenomenon in the Pacific Ocean, the El Nino-Southern Oscillation, causes year-to-year fluctuations by shifting heat in and out of deeper ocean layers. Global surface temperatures tend to be somewhat cooler during the La Nina years and somewhat hotter during the El Nino years. The last record hot year, 2016, was an El Nino year. By contrast, La Nina conditions have dominated for much of the past three years. While they've been unusually warm, they were still slightly below 2016 levels. Now scientists are expecting El Nino conditions to return later this summer. When combined with steadily rising levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that will most likely cause temperatures to accelerate to new highs. Electric Work Vans Find Eager Buyers by Neil E. Baudet Not long after buying a Ford e-transit van for his plumbing business last November, Mitch Smedley sat down with some receipts and a calculator to figure out how much the electric vehicle 
was saving him on fuel expenses. A few minutes of number crunching showed he was spending about $110 to $140 a week on fuel for each of the four older diesel transits in his fleet. Then he worked out how much electricity he was using to charge the electric model to drive the same distance, about 300 miles a week. The cost? About $9 a week. I knew there was going to be some savings because our electricity here is very inexpensive, said Mr. Smedley, whose business is based in Blue Springs, Missouri, just east of Kansas City. But I was amazed when I worked it out. It makes it really, really cheap to operate. In the auto industry's transition to electric vehicles, passenger vehicles have led the way. In the first quarter of 2023, sales of electric vehicles were up 45% from a year earlier, to 259,000 cars and trucks, according to Cox Automotive, a research firm. Tesla remains the largest seller by far, while General Motors, Ford, Hyundai, Volkswagen, and others are selling multiple electric models. Cox expects the annual electric vehicle sales total in the U.S. market to top 1 million this year for the first time. So far, commercial light vehicles are a small proportion of all electric cars and trucks sold, but in many ways, battery-powered vehicles are well-suited for work fleets. Since trucks and delivery vans often travel limited distances or established routes each day, they don't need large and expensive battery packs. Most can get by with enough energy to travel about 100 miles before they need a recharge. One factor that makes electric cars significantly more expensive than internal combustion models is that consumers want the ability to travel 250 or 300 miles on a single charge, because they fear being stranded far from any place to plug in. Commercial vehicles are typically parked overnight in lots where they can be easily charged and ready to go with a full battery in the morning. Electric trucks also require less maintenance than traditional vehicles. They don't need oil changes and have no transmissions, mufflers, or fuel pumps that can wear out or break down. And they don't burn fuel while idling. More so than consumers, commercial fleet owners look closely at the total cost of owning and operating vehicles over several years. That means they are often willing to accept a higher initial price to buy an electric truck to save money over time through lower fuel and maintenance costs. Yet commercial electric vehicles have had a slower start in sales, in part because of the troubles of several companies that had hoped to make them. Startups like Lordstown Motors, Arrival, and Canoe have struggled to start or ramp up production, as has Workhorse, a small manufacturer of commercial trucks. Rivian, a startup backed by Amazon, had hoped to sell thousands of electric vans to the online retailer by now, but has fallen far short of its goals. The delays created an opening for Ford and GM, two of the country's largest automakers, to bring out their own battery-powered work trucks. The e-Transit, a derivative of Ford's Transit commercial van, is available in various sizes and can be used as a delivery van, a shuttle bus, or a work truck for contractors, repairmen, plumbers, and other small businesses. Ford sold about 6,500 e-Transits last year. In March, the United States Postal Service ordered 9,250 e-Transits, that are supposed to go into service by the end of 2024. GM created an independent division, BrightDrop, to make a larger vehicle tailored for package and cargo delivery. BrightDrop produced a test fleet of about 500 battery-powered vans that were delivered to consumers in 2022, and started commercial production of its Zevo 600 model at a plant in Ontario this year. Along with the truck, BrightDrop has developed an electric cart to enable drivers to haul many packages from the truck, reducing the number of trips the driver makes back and forth. 
One version of the cart is refrigerated for deliveries of produce and groceries. Merchants Fleet, a company that manages vehicles used by delivery services in New Hampshire, has been using 150 Bright Drop vans over the past year and is eager to add more. Brad Jacobs, the company's vice president for fleet consulting, said the depreciation cost and the cost of interest on the capital used to buy electric vans were roughly the same as for combustion engine trucks. What we've learned from the vehicles on the road is that you save anywhere from $10,000 to $12,000 a year because the cost of fuel and maintenance is so much lower with electric vehicles, he said. If a company is planning on service life of five years, that's a savings of $50,000 per vehicle. That's very compelling. Merchant's Fleet has orders for 750 more Bright Drop trucks and reservations on an additional 17,000, Mr. Jacobs said. Large delivery companies have been clamoring for electric trucks for years. Amazon hopes to buy as many as 100,000 vans from Rivian and is considering an electric Ram ProMaster van that Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis, is supposed to start making this year. UPS has ordered 10,000 electric vans from Arrival, a startup company based in Luxembourg that has operations in Britain. Arrival has suffered financial troubles and production delays. FedEx plans to buy only battery-powered vans starting in 2030 and hopes to operate an all-electric fleet by 2040. It has been testing 150 Bright Drop trucks, is taking delivery on 350 more, and has reservations for an additional 2,000. Nelson Granados, a FedEx delivery driver in Inglewood, California, has been using a Bright Drop vehicle for the past year, a white van with the orange and purple FedEx logo next to a picture of a bright green plug and electric cord. Mr. Granados gives the truck a thumbs up. The truck has comforts the diesel vans lack, like a stereo and heated seats, as well as a lower floor that makes entering and leaving easier. You're getting in and out all day so it pays off, Mr. Granados says. It's like a luxury delivery truck. Mr. Smedley, the plumber in Kansas City, has noticed benefits from his e-transit besides fuel savings. At job sites, the truck can power equipment like drain clearing machines eliminating the need to lug around a generator. He began taking the van to Kansas City Chiefs football games, he has season tickets, so that he can use the electric outlets for tailgating parties. The truck also secures him premium parking in the spots at Arrowhead Stadium reserved for electric vehicles. This year, Mr. Smedley decided to add a second electric model to his fleet, a Ford F-150 Lightning pickup truck. He has also continued tracking the savings he's reaping from the e-transit. When I look at the cost over five years, he said with a laugh, it's almost like getting a free van. To Gen Z, the world needs wholesome. By Sabita Hassan. When Celeste Scott sees things that are unscathed by the bad things in the world, she says she can't help but blurt out, that's so wholesome. Examples, two people on opposite sides of a foggy window playing tic-tac-toe with their fingers. A monkey riding on a piglet's back. And Pedro Pascal. It's a Gen Z compliment, used to describe anything that is sincere, nice, or cute. And, according to Ms. Scott, 26, it evokes a specific reaction. People are like, aw, she said. What's not wholesome? Love is blind. When I watch that, my heart rate is up. I'm annoyed at the contestants because they're being dumb, Ms. Scott said. Wholesome Memes has 3 million followers on Twitter. Wholesome Games has 320,000 followers on TikTok. Data from Google Trends shows that Wholesome started getting popular in 2018 and peaked in September 2020. Enzo Luna, a 22-year-old communications consultant, recalls first using Wholesome in everyday language around 2019. 
I think it caught on a lot because it's just a word that sounds cool, he said. It's such a strong and simple word. Ms. Scott was working for a lifestyle blog called The Good Trade in 2019, when she called their content wholesome during a meeting. But her co-workers thought she meant it in a negative way, that their work was lame or uncool. Once they learned it was a compliment, they started using the word themselves. One co-worker even wrote a think piece about the word. Maybe before, wholesome was used to describe something a little more conservative, theorized Ms. Scott, who was the blog's youngest employee. The Gen Z compliment is free of connotations of traditional family values and virtues, according to Michelle Lamont, a sociology professor at Harvard and the author of a forthcoming book titled Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. They're not necessarily defining wholesome the way Midwesterners traditionally do, but more in the sense of having a positive outlook on life, Dr. Lamont said. Mr. Luna thinks of wholesomeness as kindness, like giving up a seat for an elder or complimenting a stranger. So does Sufian Maya, age 16. I saw a video of a person talking to a homeless man, and they became good friends after a while. It was wholesome, he said. It means a good feeling in the heart for everyone who witnessed it and was part of it. Wholesome Games, a TikTok and Twitter account that posts video snippets of cozy games, has a mostly Gen Z audience. 67% of its audience on TikTok is between 18 and 24. There are also oodles of wholesome meme accounts, which Gen Z prefers over the satirical millennial memes of the early 2010s that were coated with dark humor and doused in irony. Sometimes those ironic and satirical memes are too heavy-handed, and they go into things that, at a certain point, it's not really a joke anymore said Mr. Luna. He said he appreciated wholesome content instead. Watching cat videos is one of his favorite pastimes. I really enjoy seeing that type of content as opposed to people making fun of others, he said. And it's not just wholesome content that Gen Zers prefer. Many of them prefer wholesome people, like Harry Styles, wholesome pastimes like playing board games, and a wholesome lifestyle consisting of healing eras and protecting your peace. Wholesomeness is not just a compliment, then. It's a generational value. In a 2022 study, Dr. Lamont worked with two students, Zira Zilberstein and Maria Sanchez, who interviewed 80 college undergraduates and found out that there was an overall sentiment among Gen Z of valuing optimism and contributing to social change. This is the cohort that came of age under COVID, the first people born with a phone in their hands, Dr. Lamont said. She said the focus on positivity was a way to move forward from the hardships. Mr. Luna recently entered the workforce and started his role at Harbor Freight Tools for Schools in June 2022. He said he had noticed that his coworkers expect the world to be hard on them, but he preferred to be the person who tries to be a place of comfort for everybody, regardless of all the other difficulties that the world presses on you. Emily Torres, 33 has noticed that her Gen Z co-workers tend to bring a positive attitude into meetings. She's an editorial director at The Good Trade, and Ms. Scott was once her co-worker. I'm having some fun memories of my colleague, she said of Ms. Scott, because she was wholesome. Ralph Lee, father of puppets and a New York parade, is dead at 87. By Neil Genslinger Ralph Lee, creator of giant crustaceans, lizards, skeletons, and sorceresses, as well as one enduring New York tradition, the Village Halloween Parade, died on Friday at his home in Manhattan. He was 87. His wife, Casey Compton, confirmed the death. She said his health had been declining for several months. Mr. Lee was an actor, writer, producer, and director, but above all, he was one of puppetry's most prolific and inventive designers. 
His evocative masks and figures were seen in productions by his own Matawi River Theatre Company and in shows by the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Shakespeare Festival, New York City Opera, Theatre for the New City, and various dance troupes and stage companies. His menagerie ranged from hand puppets to fantastic figures that towered over the audience and were controlled by multiple puppeteers. One of his most famous puppets ate Gilda Radner, Lorraine Newman, Jane Curtin, and others. It was the land shark that turned up at unsuspecting women's doors in a 1975 Saturday Night Live sketch, and returned several times over the years. Masks were another Lee signature. His designs could be scary, sorrowful, or phantasmagorical. There's something mysterious about masks, he told the New York Times in 1998, when the main gallery of the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts was given over to an exhibition of his work. And the core of that mystery is that an inanimate object takes on a life. You really want the masks to be able to breathe. The mask has a fixed expression, but if it's manipulated properly, you would swear that you can see the expression change. Mr. Lee brought all his skills and interests to bear in creating the Halloween Parade in Greenwich Village, which he first staged in 1974 with production help from George Barteneff and Crystal Field of Theatre for the New City. A modest announcement in the Times promoted the event. Starting at 5 p.m., a pageant parade will spill forth from that off-off-Broadway citadel, Theatre for the New City, at Jane and West Streets, winding across Greenwich Village for a round dance in Washington Square, the announcement said. The parade was to be a transient entertainment, with musicians, giant puppets, and floats. Children were invited to wear costumes and join the procession. It was not an instant success. There were not many people around besides us, maybe bums, Mr. Lee said in 1998. And here we were, all holding sparklers, kind of looking at each other. But the next year the parade grew, and so did the audience, earning Mr. Lee an Obie Award. Soon it was a flamboyant fixture of the city's October calendar, so big that in 1985 it had to be moved off the narrow side streets of the village and onto the Avenue of the Americas. Mr. Lee stepped aside from running the show around that time, but it has continued across the decades. Halloween is for the kid and all of us, he said in 1982. It gives people, especially adults, permission to act any way they want. Ralph Minor Lee was born on July 9, 1935, in Middlebury, Vermont. His father, William, was a dean at Middlebury College, where his mother, Mary Louise Minor Lee, taught dance. He grew up in Middlebury, getting his first few years of education in a one-room schoolhouse, where he appeared in his first play. He portrayed a cat policeman, he said in a 2016 interview, for the Primary Stages Off-Broadway Oral History Project and he particularly remembered delivering one line, cat-like, I have news. The news was that I was going to be in the theater, he recalled, because I was really hooked. Puppetry was also an early interest. When I was about 12 years old, I started making puppets, and I developed my own little puppet theater with all-hand puppets, he said in an oral history recording. I used to perform for school assemblies and birthday parties, things like that. He graduated from Amherst College in 1957, then studied dance and theater in Europe on a Fulbright scholarship before trying his hand at theater in New York. He had small parts in three Broadway shows, starting with Caligula in 1960, and later in the 1960s began working with the experimental Open Theater Troupe. After that group disbanded in 1973, he made his way back to Vermont, taking a teaching job at Bennington College. It was at Bennington in the spring of 1974 that he staged an innovative theatrical event called Casserole, which the Bennington Banner described as a dramatic piece which confronts the audience with a variety of levels of reality and illusion. 
Its scenes, which incorporated Mr. Lee's puppets, were staged all around the campus, with the spectators transported from one scene to the next in hay wagons. I'd never done anything like that before in my life, he said in the oral history, and it was the first time that I had actually seen any of my puppets outdoors, and it seemed like they took on a kind of life outdoors that they just didn't have inside. From there, it was a short leap to the Halloween parade, and for decades, Mr. Lee continued to stage theater productions outdoors as well as in. He became artistic director of the Meadowy River Company shortly after it was formed by some Bennington theater graduates, including Ms. Compton, in 1975, and it staged shows in all sorts of places over the ensuing decades. Moreau Lake State Park in upstate New York, the Lawn of the Putney School in Vermont, Windsor Lake Park in Massachusetts, Central Park, and the Garden of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in Manhattan, and many more. Those works and others Mr. Lee presented often drew on traditions and mythologies from a diverse range of cultures. For years, he traveled to Mexico to work with a writer's group that seeks to preserve Mayan culture, creating a new theater work with the group each time he visited. Most of our shows are based on folk material from one culture or another, and I find that very inspiring, he said in the oral history. You're dealing with forces of nature and how they operate and how they clash with each other and how things become resolved. In February, he and Ms. Compton received a Lifetime Achievement Obie Award for their work with Meadowy. Mr. Lee's first marriage to Stephanie Lawrence Ratner in 1959 ended in divorce in 1973. In addition to Ms. Compton, whom he married in 1982, he is survived by three children from his first marriage, Heather, Jennifer, and Joshua Lee, a daughter from his second marriage, Dorothy Louise Compton Lee, six grandchildren, and a great-granddaughter. Mr. Lee's puppets were generally carefully made works of craftsmanship that bordered on art, but the Lee creature that might have been seen by more people than any, the SNL land shark, was, he said, thrown together from foam, cloth, and rubber laminate that he had lying around the house. People still know about that shark, he said in 2003. For many people, it's my claim to fame. When I was making it, he added, I thought it would get used once, and shucked. In his 1998 interview with the Times, he acknowledged that some of his work could be ephemeral, but he said that when he carved wooden masks for puppets, he was hoping for something more. The sculptor in me wants to be immortalized in his work, he said. I think I always had the urge to build things for eternity. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Picketing with more than a contract on their minds by Gina Cherilis. I'm not out here necessarily for love. I'm here for a strike daddy, Brett Meyer said, a length of blue yarn tied around his wrist. Mr. Meyer, a 35-year-old television writer, had recently arrived at a picket line outside the Universal Studios lot in Los Angeles, where dozens of writers were gathered on the ninth day of a writer's strike that has brought Hollywood productions to a standstill. But while the Writers Guild of America remains laser-focused on securing better compensation and protections from studios, its membership is only human. After spending hours marching around in a loop with the same people, a few connections are bound to be made. If things happen past strike, that would be wonderful, Mr. Meyer said of his would-be strike daddy. But if there's someone I can come here every day with and just chat-chat for four hours and go home, I'm happy. Around 5 p.m. on Wednesday, a large crowd mostly made up of Writers Guild of America members gathered for a singles event at Roadside Taco, a Studio City taco spot a short walk from the Universal picket line. At the restaurant, the line to order was spilling out the door, making it hard to move around. There were at least 200 people at the event, cheekily titled Strike Up a Romance, 
about an hour into the night. It's like traffic, said Diego Ramirez, a filmmaker who is sitting at a bistro table alone, taking a break from mingling. The more dense it is, the more it's hard to move around. Annabel Inigo, 28, was waiting to snag a table outside when she engaged in what she called a very flirty conversation with a man to whom she eventually gave her contact information. I accidentally texted me through his phone and spelled my name incorrectly because I'm so tired from walking for four hours, she said. My last name is I-N-I-G-O, and I added in a D. I don't know why I did that. While fighting to save the companies from themselves earlier that day, Michael Robin said, someone on the picket line had caught his eye, and he was hoping he would spot her at the restaurant. I was in the crosswalk, Mr. Robin recalled. She was wearing an orange vest and a WGA captain baseball cap. She saved my life from oncoming traffic. Sparks flew. She said she was going to be here, so we'll see, he continued. I asked her if she knew about the singles event, and she said, oh yeah, I requested this shift. Hours before the mixer, protesters packed the sidewalks outside the Universal Studios gates, marching in circles, chanting, and waving signs. At a table set up across the street from the picket line, organizers were handing out strips of yarn in different colors. Blue indicated that you were interested in men, pink in women, purple, your fluid. Many stopped by the table to grab a piece to tie around their wrists, delighted by the news of an open bar. One person could be overheard sharing a hopeful thought. Maybe I'll meet somebody. Manifest that, someone replied. Asked about their dating lives before the shutdown, several writers described being too busy working long hours in writers' rooms or on set to make time for romance. One silver lining of the strike, they now have more time to connect, platonically and romantically. Varda Tarosin, a television drama writer originally from Bulgaria, said she would prefer to date someone from the industry who could understand her lifestyle, but had found it difficult to make time. I seriously think the WGA should have their own OK Cupid, OK Writers or whatever, she said. We're fighting to not be squeezed out of our life and savings, she added, but to have personal lives and to have sustainable lives and time for ourselves. At Paramount Studios earlier on Wednesday, Ashinda Norris, a 43-year-old filmmaker, was taking a moment to rest from the march. She said she had been single for years and had recently tried her, a lesbian dating app, but had mostly taken a break from dating, calling the process overwhelming. If I'm in pre-production or production, dating is not going to happen, she said. If I'm on set for 8 hours, 10 hours, sometimes 12 hours, I'm not going to have the energy to go on a date. Outside the Paramount gates, dozens of picketers waved signs while others carried open pizza boxes so members could fuel up with a slice. The gathering was also the first official Black Writers meetup on the picket line organized by the Guild's Committee of Black Writers. Back at Roadside Taco, the outdoor seating area was crowded, with a long line of people waiting to grab a drink at the open bar curving into itself. Picket signs were parked upside down in various corners so people could free up their hands for margaritas and tacos. The mixer was a brainchild of Jada Samuels Kuba and Lauren Rosenberg, two industry professionals who run a matchmaking business together. Debbie Wolf, the showrunner of Lopez v. Lopez, one of the show's writers, Marcos Luanevos, and the writer Deanna Shoemaker. Ms. Wolf said she had been hearing people express interest in meeting other singles on the picket line and was inspired to host the mixer, taking a cue from the last major strike. We've heard these legends of writers meeting their spouses on the last picket in 2007. Hunter Covington and Stacy Traub, who met during the last strike at a singles-themed picket that Mr. Covington organized in 2007, were on the line on Wednesday. They recently celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary.
Everyone here has a lot of time. All they have is time, Ms. Traub said. You only have to pick it four hours a day. The rest of the day is free. Nye Littlejohn, a TV writer, was at roadside keeping an eye out for a cute man she had met at Paramount during the Black Writers' Gathering. I met someone really beautiful there, but he's not here, so he's not single, she said. Mushad Moore, an actor and writer, sat alone in the back of the restaurant's patio area, away from the crowd. After being on the picket line for most of the afternoon, all he wanted was to rest. I'm tired as hell, he said. Right now, the mingles got to come to me. For Max Larson and Philip Walker, sparks really started to fly. Mr. Walker was striking on the picket line outside Universal when he heard someone yell out to him, Oh, hello, Blue, referring to the blue yarn around his wrist. I looked over there, and there was this really cute guy, and that was Max, Mr. Walker said, and that was hours ago. The two later ran into each other at roadside after exchanging glances across the bar, and eventually joined each other at a table and began talking about how they were both from Chicago. At one point, they even exchanged a kiss. Mr. Meyer was waiting outside at roadside to grab a cocktail, but there was still no sign of a strike daddy. I've waited in line for an hour, so I haven't been able to find him yet, he said. Ms. Samuels Kuba, one of the mixer's organizers, said that the night had far exceeded her expectations. I think people knew we were going to focus on picketing, and then I'll find this person later over tacos, she said. Attempts at romance weren't limited to the picket lines. During its brief existence, the Twitter account WGA Strike Bays promised to help bridge the missed connections on the picket line. The page was later taken down after causing anger for sharing submissions that included gender speculations and racial stereotypes like spicy Latinx and new being goddess. The creator of the account declined a request to be interviewed. Some strikers also went on to criticize others for expressing interest in dating on the picket line, worried it could overshadow the strike. But others argued that activities such as the singles event and the Black Writers Meetup would help sustain the WGA membership through what is expected to be a long strike. At Disney Studios on Thursday, a day after the mixer, strikers were in full force. Some made laps around the entire campus, while others performed karaoke, singing songs like Survivor by Destiny's Child and Hey Ya by Outkast. Michael Rodriguez, 28, was recapping his experience at the singles mixer the night before while picketing at Disney. It was packed, he said. The venue couldn't hold us. Many writers are interested in finding love. I think that's what that means. Shakina Starks, an actress, said she hadn't been searching for anyone, but did have what she called a semi-meet-cute. Someone accidentally smacked the hell out of me with a sign, she said. The man apologized, but a friend of hers saw an opportunity. My friend was like, now you owe her a drink, Ms. Starks said. And I was like, I don't want to put that pressure on him, because he's also not being paid. Tash Gray, the writer and producer who led the planning of the Black Writers Meetup the day before, said at the Disney picket line that she had received several messages from people expressing gratitude, and others asking her to plan a black singles mixer. I got that request twice, and one was from a guy, she said, so I was like, you know what? I would be open to doing that. Matthew Rasmussen admitted that he had, on occasion, checked Grinder while at the picket lines to see who was nearby. He hit it off with a fellow picketer at CBS, and they spent most of the afternoon getting to know each other. Mr. Rasmussen was hesitant to ask him out in front of colleagues, and they eventually were separated at the end of the day. He almost gave up searching for him after not finding him on Grindr and social media, but the man soon sent him a message. It was basically a mirror image of what I was feeling, Mr. Rasmussen said at a phone interview on Saturday. He was like, man, I really wanted to ask you out for a drink, but I didn't want to do it in front of my coworkers." 
they met up at a bar before the weekend and hit it off. I think we might start seeing each other, Mr. Rasmussen said. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 18th edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.